You're listening to Leading the Way, a podcast series from global advisory firm StoneTurn, where our experts speak with accomplished and approachable business leaders who share their real-world insights on a range of topics, from risk and compliance to investigations, business disputes, and more. Welcome to Leading the Way Stone Turn Podcast. I'm uh, Xavier Ustenyot, a partner based out of San Francisco, working at uh, Stone Turn, a global advisory firm. And joining me today is Philippa Gerling, who's Chief Risk Officer at Varo, America's first digital consumer bank. Over the next two episodes, we'll discuss Varo, its success in the fintech uh, industry as a disruptor in financial services arena, and what the risk landscape looks like for a branchless bank. So let's uh, let's get started. Um, uh, Philippa, welcome. Uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your professional background and uh, what led you to uh, to uh, join Vero? Uh, absolutely, I can. Thank you so much for inviting me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I am a reformed banker and secretly a lawyer. Uh, so both of those professions are in my past. And what brought me on this journey to Varo was really three things. Uh, quite a personal journey for me, but I think it also outlines who Varo is and why I'm here. So there were three things that really drove me to decide to leave traditional banking. The first one was uh, about three years ago, I was sitting in a meeting and I found myself banging my fist on the table to try and be heard to answer a question that had been directed to me that was being answered by two of my male colleagues. This, as a woman in financial services, is not an unusual situation. And I remember in that moment thinking, I really need to find a role in an organization that is fully inclusive a role where the mission of the organization is also inclusive and all the voices are being heard around the table. So that was the first thing that drove me there. The second thing was I also found myself trying very hard to find within the legacy banking arena an opportunity to truly innovate. What I found is that while there is some really excellent innovation in banking, a lot of that innovation tends to happen in little pockets. So you find yourself in a, a small boutique innovation lab somewhere in San Francisco where everybody's drinking kombucha and wearing t-shirts and jeans, and they come up with a really great innovation for the bank. They send it back to the mothership, and there it gets bolted on the outside like barnacles on a ship. There isn't that true all the way from the inside out innovation. And if you look at other industries, things like Uber, Airbnb, Netflix, they've really taken the whole industry and started from scratch. And I felt like we really needed to do that in banking. And I was looking for an opportunity to go somewhere where we could start with a clean slate and truly innovate from the very beginning, not reliant on legacy systems, legacy processes, legacy thinking. And then the third thing that drove me uh, away from traditional banking was um, all my children actually had grown up. They'd all gone off and done exciting things around the world. And I realized many of the things they had done, they had done because they had privilege. They had the privilege to make the decisions and choices that they made. Some of their closest friends did not have that same privilege. And that privilege came from my own privilege. And so in that moment, and this was about three and a half, four years ago, I decided I need to go somewhere where I am part of the systemic solution to help redress the inequality that exists here in America. 
I need to find somewhere that innovates all the way from the inside out, and I need there to be inclusion at the table. So just as I'd made this decision, Borrow approached me and said, here we are out in San Francisco building the first bank from scratch. We're going to be the first fintech to get a national charter. We have a fully inclusive board and management team, and our mission is to bring about equality of access to financial services products to those people who have been unfairly denied that access. It was the perfect job for me. And so I took all of my 25 years of banking experience and I brought it into Varo to be the chief risk officer to help us get that charter last year. I, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your background. So in your previous lives and your reformed career, so to speak, um, did, did you were you already a chief risk officer? I would assume yes, but if you can please clarify that for us. Yes, absolutely. I started out in financial services back in the 90s, and I worked my way through sort of project management roles, change management roles. And then I found myself around 2004 when all the new Basel regulation was coming in and operational risk started to be a topic that everyone was talking about. I moved into the operational risk function, and I've been in several global operational risk roles in investment banking and regional banking and national banking. And my last role, I was chief risk officer of a large community bank, or I say regional bank. And so this journey for me has been very much from a traditional legal background through project management and change management into risk management. And now as chief risk officer, I have responsibility for all of those risk areas. We call Varo a fintech bank. You just uh, or fintech. Uh, you just called it a fintech, and I want to make sure that we agree on what, in your mind, uh, is a fintech. Because one of the things that you mentioned is um, uh, what what attract. One of the things that attracted you to Varo was the fact that you were able to create something from within. In other words, in other words, not as a bolt-on to a larger type bank who has one innovative product patches on uh, onto their other type of service offerings and then just call themselves a fintech or have a fintech lab, so to speak, where they're trying to compete with actual fintech. So in, in your mind, how, what, what differs between a fintech and between one of those banks that call themselves fintech or innovative or create those products? What, what's your take on that? Well, there are so many definitions out there where people talk about neobanks, challenger banks, fintechs, techfin. I would say Varo is a bank. Right? And most of the companies that are, define themselves as fintech are not banks. What they do is they work with a sponsor bank model. So they're using a bank to help them provide services that look like banking to their customers. Right. Colin Walsh, the CEO at Varo, had always intended that Varo would become a bank. And his vision is very much that from within the financial services system, we need to provide fair access to people who haven't had access to that financial services system. So yes, I think people would classify Varo as a fintech up until the moment we received the charter. Right. We are now fully a bank. And, and that brings us uh, to my, my uh, next question, which is, I think you applied for, for a charter in, in the United States as a, the first virtual bank, and you applied in 2017, I think, and, and you received that last year, like in Ju July of 2020. Uh, so you are effectively the first bank, uh, fintech bank, let's call you, uh, to receive that charter. What does that mean? 
Yes, we're the first um, digital bank to receive a national charter. Uh, it means that we are willing to play the game within the rules, right? And we really believe that the regulatory environment for banking is there for a reason. It's there to protect the customer and it's there to protect the financial services industry. And it's important that systemically we are a safe contributor to the financial services system. And it's also very important to us that we never accidentally or intentionally mislead or harm our customers. And really, that's all that the regulatory environment is about, those two things. Are you safe as an institution? And are your customers safe interacting with you? And so we were very committed to getting that charter last year. It was a lift. I mean, that was three years of work. And uh, there were no shortcuts to get through those three years. You have to just do the work. Right. But we did do it. And we feel really comfortable that we have what the regulators consider a sufficient and appropriate risk management and governance framework that is a bank framework. But we maintain that innovation and energy that we have that comes from the fact that we are native to the cloud and based all of our development on our own technology and opportunities to really build out a structure that can be innovative and fast in the way that we respond to product needs and customer needs. It sounds like it's great for consumer protection. And also, it sounds like maybe the, the regulators are now evolving with the needs of the market and the consumers in the way that they are ready to embrace uh, innovative companies such as yours to say, yes, you can, you know, we will regulate you and we will welcome uh, fintechs into our world. And did you feel that through that process, um, the the regulators you were interacting with, and I assume it's the OCC, the FDIC, uh, were understood what you were going after, and, and were uh, and understood the difference. Yes, so the OCC are our primary regulator, so we have worked very closely with them on everything in the preparation for the charter. They provided us with all the feedback that we needed to make sure that we could make the right framework um, stood up for the bank. The FDIC obviously ensure all banks. And so they care deeply about whether we are financially viable. And the Federal Reserve are actually also involved because we have a holding company. So we have had a lot of conversations with our regulators. And I think it's you're correct to say that they are open to the idea that a non-traditional bank can actually be an effective and safe environment for consumers. What they haven't changed is their expectation. Now, their expectations around how you manage risk, how you have corporate governance has not changed at all. That is exactly the same as it always was. What they're really open to, though, is that a different type of player comes in and builds that framework. And obviously, they're looking out for the protection of the consumers. And did you notice and uh, did you notice that after you received that, that charter, that consumers were, uh, I mean, I would assume it is comfort for consumers to know that you have a charter, that the regulators are looking over the shoulder of Barrow uh, and benefit from both its innovation, its access or newly provided access that other banks do not provide to the consumers, while they have some guarantees that somebody is going to do, uh, is going to control their, their savings and their accounts and they're going to be protected. Did you notice a pick, uh, pickup in, in activity and in signing on people, et cetera? You know, it's interesting and it's a question we often consider. We're not sure that our customers care as deeply about whether we're a bank or not as we do. 
I think for us being a bank, it's very important for our um, model, for our revenue model. It's extremely important for us to get off of a sponsor bank model, which is very expensive. So fintechs that sit on a sponsor bank model, a lot of the income that you're generating is going towards paying for the services coming from that sponsor bank. And the sponsor bank, you know, we had a great relationship with ours, but they have their own rules. They have their own restrictions. They have their own approval process. And so it can also hinder your ability to develop products right. that actually are going to benefit the customer. Our commitment to becoming a bank was not so much driven by the fact that our customers would flock in as soon as they saw the bank stamp on our name. It was more that we wanted to have the ability to build out the products with the right financial model that would benefit the customers, and that is what would make them come. And so we knew that a banking charter was really important to our business model, and our customers are now flocking in, um, but they're, they're flocking in because they see the products that are available to them and that we're able to allow them into our environment in ways that they actually haven't had access to before. Now, some customers are savvy enough to know this is truly a bank and it does matter to them. And I think as we continue to grow in the next three to five years, it will matter more and more because we're going to see more of our customers coming from traditional banking. Yeah. And as we see them coming from traditional banking, they're going to want that security right. that this is an FDIC insured bank that they're coming to. And so uh, stepping back for a second, uh, obviously Vero got started, but somebody had to fund uh, uh, the startup, so to speak. And, and, uh, and I think that you're probably past the startup phase, uh, to, to be fair, although you may contradict me on this and you're welcome to. Um, but uh, so what, what type of profile of investors do you have behind you? And obviously not asking you to name names unless they're public or anything, but um, what, what type of backers do you, do you have? Yes. Well, some of those backers I absolutely can name. We've had support right from the very early days of Varo from Warburg Pincus and the Rise Fund. Um, the Rise Fund is one of the largest impact investing funds in the world. It was co-founded by Bono. Um, also Gallatin Point Capital, Harborfest Partners, Progressive Insurance. Um, and then, of course, much more recently, Russell Westbrook Enterprises also joined as backers. We see a lot of people very interested in backing us at the moment. And um, raising capital is not an issue as people are looking for an opportunity to participate in the journey that we're on. But those were really the key at the very beginning who had confidence in the model right at the start. Uh, kudos for that. And, and since you're attracting other investors, it means things are working and it speaks to your success. And, and some of those uh, uh, founders, sound, it sounds like, um, are interested also in the type of customers who you can bring on who maybe have been disenfranchised and you made a reference to one of the, the triggers for you joining Vero, um, those customers who were previously not allowed to have access to the banking system and are accessing the banking system. And I think it sounds like those are related in terms of vision as well as who you're targeting and how you're getting started and the success that you're having. Could you, could you tell us a little more about the uh, uh, primary customer segment that you've targeted um, and, and define for us, you know, who are those people, these disenfranchised uh, customers who you're bringing on board, who other banks have left behind? Yes, absolutely. So we are really leaning into what is a massively underserved market of tens of millions of consumers who have been really left behind by traditional banks. In fact, it's the majority of American consumers. In America, 40, about 40 million Americans have expenses that are larger than their income. And those people are 
absolutely left out of the banking system and they end up turning to things like payday loans and other alternative services. One of the things we know is that it's actually very expensive to be poor in America. If you look at people who are having to turn to payday lenders and check cashers, they're paying very large fees to get access to their money. And these are people who can least afford those fees. And then you have another about 140 million Americans whose expenses just about equal their income. And so they are living mostly just day to day able to cope. This is the majority of Americans in the middle class. And they often do go to traditional banks, but there they pay significant fees. So on average, we find that Varo is serving customers who would pay at least $350 a year in just overdraft fees alone. If they were a traditional bank, what we're trying to do is give them access to the banking services that they need and the cash flow tools that they need so that they can exist within the environment and build their credit. And one of the things we're really focused on is putting products into the market that help people to build that credit. Our focus is really on the underserved, the overcharged consumers who are struggling to get ahead. We want to give them that opportunity to get on their feet and then get ahead. And the traditional banks, of course, and, and you're referring to that, is uh, do do make people pay for whenever there's a quote unquote violation of their uh, overdrafts or when, when it, I mean, they, they basically prepper them with fees and, and they always stay under. So um, we'll, we'll get a little uh, more into how do you make money, uh, obviously, because some of those banks do that to generate profit uh, and how, how it works to the extent you can, you, can, you can share some of those insights. So is it fair to say then that ESG is, is critical, a critical part of, of, the, of your philosophy uh, in building the bank? It absolutely is. And I would say this, the mission for us comes up in all of our conversations. Every time we're looking at product development and it's the chief risk officer, I own the new product approval process. As we look through new products, we always have a conversation around, is this something that will benefit the customers we are trying to benefit? Is this going to help them on the path we're trying to help them along? And we would never bring a product into the market where we feel this is harming our customers in some way or holding them back. And you are right, a lot of people are paying fees and they're paying fees because they can't either get access to a bank account or they have access to a bank account, but they're being charged a lot in order to use it. And we're trying to make that just an experience that is not what happens to a Varo customer. Instead, they're treated with respect. They are treated as somebody who is looking to manage their money effectively. And we want to give them the tools to help them to do that. So uh, let's uh, shift gears for a second and let's talk about the fact that you're virtual. Not you, as I'm talking to you, although we are <laughs> exchanging uh, virtually currently, because as the world we evolve in, no matter what we want to do. Um, but uh, uh, how how can uh, financial institutions such as your uh, a bank, let's a uh, fintech, and, uh, ensure that you've got a seamless account openings and servicing experience without having any branches? Because that that is one of the big differentiating factors that Varo, besides what you just mentioned. Uh, has with other banks, which have to maintain branches and and ATMs and all of that infrastructure and deal with real estate and have uh, all kinds of, of uh, investments that are related to that. I mean, obviously, that's a big money saver uh, for the bank, but that brings challenges with it, I would imagine. As a risk officer, you must know that more than anybody else in the bank, or yep. at least that must keep you up sometimes at night. Uh, so how how does that work? I mean, how 
how can you open accounts not meeting people, not not seeing them, or I don't know if you see them, maybe virtually. Can you tell us a little more about this, Philippa? Yes, we are a branchless bank. And so as a branchless bank, we have to find ways to know our customers. I think this is exactly the world that we live in today. And this is, as I said right at the very beginning, one of the reasons I came here to borrow is because I wanted to be part of something that reinvents banking entirely. If you look at other organizations that have managed to reinvent the industries, it's because they've embraced the fact that this is a brave new world where people actually don't have to do things physically. They do most of what they do virtually or in some kind of system environment. And so we do have to find a way to allow our customers into our environment safely. And to do that, we have a whole Know Your Customer CIP program, which is usual for a bank. And then in addition to that, we continue to refine ways that we can look at the identity of this individual and ensure it is truly them. And there are ways to do that using technology based on the devices that they are connecting with, their location, what we can glean from the interaction between the customer and us that helps us confirm this is truly the person who they say that they are. Now, we do also, in addition, have an opportunity to do step-up type activities like show us a scan of your driving license and a live selfie so that we can see you and your driver's license match. But as much as possible, we try and do things in the background using technology and the way that we can pinpoint where someone is, what they are using, how they're interacting to really, this is their footprint. And that footprint helps identify somebody as an appropriate customer for Varro. Not only do we have to do that when they come in the door, we have to do that whenever they come back in to interact with us. Now, if you look at a traditional bank, most of what their customers do is virtual. Most of their customers do not go into a bank and do not use a checkbook. What they do is they interact with their online banking portal and they call customer service if they get stuck. Do you at any point in time have to see the people? I mean, do you have to see them? Do you have to talk to them? Or is everything the account opening process is just throughout filling out forms and then trying to validate uh, through some digital keys or security measures who you're dealing with? Right. So, for example, um, if you were going to come to borrow and open a new account, the first thing we need to do is work out that it's actually you and not someone pretending to be you. So the first step for us is to authenticate, is this genuinely Philippa Girling on Philippa Girling's known device with a known telephone number in an expected location, behaving in a way that we expect her to behave? If so, then we can move on to the onboarding process. If not, we're going to require some additional verification that this is truly her. Right. So sometimes we can smooth someone through quite quickly because we have a lot of information that is easily accessible about them that's just publicly available. Um, sometimes we don't. And sometimes we're going to then say, I'm going to need your driver's license and a picture that shows me that you're alive and that you matched your driving license. So those kinds of steps are there. But we'd like to move away from that as much as possible. Now, once I'm in the door and I have a bank account, Every time I go to use my card or use the app or log in through the web, we're going to check, is this still you? Are we sure it's you? Uh, to make sure nobody else has compromised your account. Right. Now, all of that has to happen in a traditional bank also. That is fair. And uh, 
And uh, as, as a customer of banks too, I've got now more than ever minimal uh, interactions or live interactions or being asked to show up in a, in, a, in a bank. So I think it's also a way to embrace the reality of the way we're evolving. And certainly the pandemic, which uh, had to come up during any type of podcast in 2021 or 2020, uh, has created or forced that environment to uh, accelerate, so to speak, meaning that probably Vero is benefiting from that too. Uh, and, and I'm sure the banks, I mean, they've kept their branches closed. They've been paying for the real estate, but they haven't been able to use them for quite for an entire year, for instance. Yes, for us, it was interesting because the pandemic, the most disruption for us was we as a business, how are we going to work? And we were able to, on a Friday, decide that we were all going to work virtually and we all, on Monday morning, were working virtually. We didn't skip a beat because the environment that we have built is built in such a way that we can all be located anywhere and work effectively. And that's how we've designed the work environment. From a business point of view, it was interesting to see. We were watching, you know, how is this going to impact our plans? The, the number of customers we expected to come, what's the economic environment going to be like for us at Varro? And what we found was that the because nothing changed about opening an account at Varro or doing business with Varro, we actually found that we were continuing to grow at the pace that we had hoped for. And most of the challenges that we faced during the pandemic were actually to do with stimulus. So as the stimulus money came in, there were huge amounts of money coming in through stimulus and PPP loans and now child credit that we need to make sure we have all the processes to manage. Um, And that was the biggest challenge for us was the huge influx of money that came through those programs. But the growth plans for us really remained pretty much the same because we are a digital virtual environment anyway. Well, something to be said about being ready for a pandemic, uh, Philip. I'm not sure that's the way you envisioned it, but certainly you were able to, or Vera was able to respond to it pretty seamlessly, it sounds like. Well, Philippa, thanks for uh, for joining us today and for your great insight and presenting Varo. It was very informative, I thought, and, uh, and very different from what we're used to. It was a pleasure having you, Philippa. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for part two of our conversation with Philippa, where we will discuss the risk landscape facing America's first virtual bank. Thank you for listening to today's Leading the Way episode. For more helpful insights and practical advice, turn to us at stoneturn.com.